Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Conversations That Matter, the podcast. Today's discussion will center on intersecting identities and compounding forms of discrimination. Justin and Holly, two occupational therapists, will engage in a conversation on double discrimination related to queerness and race, as well as discuss how the historical context of occupational therapy has been either a support or barrier to accessing healthcare services. Justin is a registered occupational therapist in British Columbia, currently in a second year of the UBC Rehabilitation Sciences PhD program. After completing OT studies, he lived and worked in hospital and community mental health settings where the Fraser and Nechaco Rivers meet on the unceded Laidli Tene First Nation Territory in Prince George. He is a proud Metis Nation of BC citizen with mixed Red River Métis and European settler ancestry. He is seeking to understand how engagement in meaningful occupations can help foster resilience during life disruptions. Holly is an occupational therapist and PhD student in the UBC Rehabilitation Sciences program. Holly began working in mental health as a new grad, transitioned to acute care, then to a community setting in their hometown on unceded Westnick territory on what settlers called Vancouver Island. Holly discovered their Métis identity later in life and is of Scottish immigrant lineage on their father's side. Their passion, interests and research center on how the aspects of identity such as race, age, gender, sex and disability status intersect to influence occupational and social experiences. So a big welcome to both Holly and Justin for being with us here today. And we're gonna dive right in. Um, let's talk about double discrimination or compounding forms of oppression. First, what is double or compounded discrimination? Oh, thank you for the very lovely introduction, Justine. And good name, by the way. <laughs> um, what, what is double discrimination or compound discrimination? So that is the experience of facing oppression due to two aspects of your identity. So for example, if you're a person of color and you're queer, you may face discrimination, you may face oppression, marginalization for both of those identities at the same time. and. And for folks who are doubly or or triply or more than that marginalized, this is something that that they live with quite often on a on a daily basis. And I'm just going to add to that. I think it's really interesting how this is something that we all experience on a day to day basis in terms of intersection of our identities. And when we sit back and reflect on what that means, we all experience both privilege and oppression in different ways and at different times given our context. So for example, if somebody is queer and is spending time in a queer community, they may not experience oppression in that moment if they are white and experience privilege in a different way. Whereas somebody who is a person of color steps into a space where there's other queer people around and they too are queer, they may still experience oppression or discrimination because they're a person of color. So when we contextualize it, it's a lot to unpack, but it's also things that we all experience every day. When we walk into a grocery store, 
we wouldn't necessarily think of that as a space where we're experiencing oppression. But if now given it's COVID, if you walk past somebody and all of a sudden they say something rude to you, is it because the way you look? Is it because of something that you did? Maybe you are um, you have a visible disability and you're a wheelchair user. So there's so many um, parts of our identity that when you put us all in different contexts, we could experience different types of discrimination. And I think double discrimination is just something that um, when we name it the way that Justin has, it's just really interesting way to frame it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that's really well said. And the grocery store example is a perfect encapsulation of how rampant these kinds of experiences can be. And, and for folks who, who live with live with the experience of being oppressed, how it how it is so common and it's it's trauma. It, it really is. It's it's trauma. It's daily trauma going through something like that. And so I think that we have to be aware as 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 occupational therapists, as healthcare providers, when we're working with folks who who may who may face that double discrimination. Justin, do you think there are things that occupational therapists do either knowingly or um, maybe unknowingly that contribute to any type of these discrimination, given that the healthcare system is a place of trauma for many folks in a historical context and then currently as well? Yeah, you know, I was um, I was thinking about the the OT profession as a whole earlier today when when I was when I was preparing to to have this conversation with you and I I don't want to totally write off our profession because I think we we have a lot of things going for us that are positive and and that give occupational therapists a a lens into oppression that is somewhat unique. Uh, one of the factors is that we're a, we're a profession that is majority cis women, and 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 cis women are unfortunately uh, victims of oppression and discrimination, even even today in in twenty twenty one, and although that's not the same as facing discrimination due to race, due to sexual orientation, disability status. I think anytime you, you've gone through something like discrimination and oppression, there's the potential for you to have an increased empathy and, and awareness to those sorts of experiences that, that your clients may go through. So if we can, if we can reflect on our own lives, if we can heal our own stuff <laughs> um then then i think there's a lot of potential for us to be those activists and those change agents and and there's a lot of ot's who do that in their daily practice working one-on-one -on -one with clients or or in other types of roles like as advocates or researchers yeah i think that's really important how you highlight that the more we reflect on knowing ourselves and even if we don't necessarily have to share it outwardly, but acknowledging the ways that we have felt oppressed and what that has taught us, and then bringing that forward as a reflexive practitioner and thinking, okay, if I've experienced this, how may my clients, how may, might that be influencing their occupational choices or occupational experiences? Um, and I think another thing that 
is interesting is when you do that work, the more you know your own identity, it it almost brings down some potential barriers to building rapport with clients because you can use selective disclosure to to share things about yourself and say, I've, you know, I've experienced something in my life that, and this is what it taught me and use yourself as kind of the therapeutic use of self as an example. And the client may relate in some ways to it, but there's also a bit of a risk with that, um, which kind of leads me to a question actually that I wanted to ask you. And sorry, Justine, I'm kind of stealing your job with the questions. Um, but what's your experience been like as a man in a profession that, as you identified, is mostly um, cisgender white women, if you're willing to share and go there? Oh, I love that question. I, I wasn't expecting it, though. Um, you know, I, I, my experience as as a male occupational therapist, I don't think I can I can untie it from my experience as a queer person. So for for example, when I was in occupational therapy school, there were I think uh, six cis men in the in the program with me and they wanted to make sort of an unofficial group of of you know group themselves together and call themselves bro tees and i just really hated that because it's so wrapped up in um toxic heterosexual culture that that was my my reaction to it at the time like no i'm not a bro tee i I'm not going to take on that kind of role. That really sucks. <laughs> and and why do we need male solidarity? Like men have enough power in in the world. I I'm, I don't know this for sure, but I, I I bet that males are overrepresented when it comes to positions of leadership in occupational therapy and in uh, the academic sphere. So. I guess I, I I'm just aware of the fact of my male privilege, but at the same time aware of the ways in which being a queer person shapes my lens that I view the world and and that has absolutely been a source of oppression in throughout my life and and as a as an OT as a clinician as well. Thank you so much for that sharing, Justin. You know, you've, yeah, you, Brotees, I will never be able to forget that or unremember that. Um, but it really did trigger a, a feeling I had recently when the WFOT lineup for Paris 2022 was announced. And, um, and it's really interesting in 2021 because I think for cis women, we feel like we've come a really long way in representation. And as you've identified, we still experience certain struggle, struggles in certain realms. But I think when we saw collectively an, an all-male lineup, all white men, European ancestry um, presenting at the World Federation of Occupational Therapy in 2022, uh, with a theme titled Revolution, um, it was it was truly shocking. Like I was shocked to the core and Holly filled me in and all the social media posts that were taking place. And um, in, in fortunately, a female um, speaker of a different background was eventually added to the lineup. But it's, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing that, you know, in 
just the, the experience of the male privilege, even in a profession that's uh, globally anywhere between 95 and 99% female, um, how those opportunities are still posing for men over women. And there could be, I have not talked to anybody at WFOT for full exposure. There could, or there could be a rational explanation for it, but I know that the optics of it were, were huge. Um, and I felt in that moment, even though this is not about cisgender white women, it, um, I did feel discrimination in that in that moment of, um, and I think you identified that early on, how context defines discrimination. I That's something really powerful that stuck with me. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's such a good example with the World Federation of OT conference. And it seems like, duh, why, what were you thinking with this? But, but I think people unintentionally, they, they have blind spots when it comes to their, their own privilege and to the, the lack of privilege in, in, in certain contexts that other folks have. So I would definitely encourage all occupational therapists, all people really to, to, to reflect like like you said, Holly, on on your positionality and your identities and how those fit in relation to other people in in society. Yeah, and I'm hoping we can go there a little bit more because that that's um, that's a really good starting place. Is as OTs starting with ourselves before trying to fix something outside of ourselves. Um, so just to follow up on that, so what are we're kind of talking about what OTs could be facing either themselves or their clients directly. But when you realize that discrimination, first of all, one type of discrimination is taking place, and then you recognize more forms of discrimination taking place, what can OTs do to address that? I mean, is it is it within their day-to-day -day clinical role to take on, you know, changing that? Or is there an expectation for OTs at kind of a systems level to address discrimination? Um, I think there's, it's a really interesting question. I think I've said that about every question so far, but um, there's layers to this like there is to many things. And I think, I don't want to call it a mistake, but uh, perhaps an oversight um, with the way that things are perhaps done a lot of the time is that there's one truth, there's one answer, there's one solution. And I think if we move away from that towards like, there, well, there's many truths, there's many ways that work for many different types of people. And um, if we bring that into what we do as occupational therapists when it comes to advocating is there's layers to that. So what can I do in my day-to-day -day work with clients if I'm a clinician working out in the field? Well, I can address each person as an individual and I can get to know them and their culture, what's important to them, like truly meet them where they're at and just listen and not come in with an agenda. Like we can do all those things that we hopefully are learning to do as we go through our clinical practice. And then when we get back to the workplace and we're charting, we can use um, like relationship-based care and um, words that are very intentional so we can do advocating in like a small way in our actual like documentation and then when we go to rounds we can talk about clients using you know person first language and kind of goes all the way up and then if we have a meeting with ma like management and we ask okay these decisions are being made where are the people of color or the marginalized folks um, are they being included in these conversations do they have a seat at the table can we throw this table out the window and just sit in a circle and talk about this topic so I think there's different layers to how we can truly advocate. And 
it's a privilege to be able to advocate in a way because it means that you have the connection to to those who are impacting others by having a role at the table to impact the, to make the change happen. It really does start from the top, but as OTs, I think we have an in at each level, depending on how we use that as a strategy. Yeah, I think that that's really well said, Holly. I and I, I want to highlight the fact that although the occupational therapy profession is not always recognized and we constantly have to explain what we do to to our colleagues and especially to our clients. And, and also, I think OTs tend to be rather humble folks, but there's a lot of power that we wield both both as occupational therapists, you know, be, being in that role itself and and being within the system. You know, there's there's prestige associated with our job when we're speaking up in a in a team meeting or grand rounds or something like that. There, there's a lot of other health professionals who who really listen to what we have to say. Uh, in my experience, especially those who have worked in the system for a long time and they've seen the impact that we have on clients' lives, you know, our our opinions and and our voice, it it's really listened to. Our chart notes are are read. So so with all that said, when when we see a client who is facing oppression or discrimination or there's something that's wrong with the system, I think we can leverage that power and prestige that we have as OTs for the better. We we can we can speak up and we can be those advocates and yeah, I think that we we should not forget the power that we have as as OTs. And I just I wanted to add one more thing about this. It's kind of echoing what you talked about already, Holly, in in day to day practice. But but facing barriers, oppression, being discriminated against these these are traumatic experiences. So what are we taught to do as as clinicians working with people who have faced trauma? Well, we need to practice in a trauma informed way. So on a on a therapist to client level, that means not making assumptions about somebody. That means giving people lots of choice, whether it's where you're going to meet them or. Or at what time you're going to meet them, do they want somebody there with them, like a family member or perhaps uh, if if you can show up to the assessment or the appointment with a colleague, uh, this this is something, especially for me as a male OT, if I'm working with a non-male client, I will often put it as a as an option to my client for for a second colleague to be with me. It can be a way to um, be supportive of of any kind of client because you don't know what sorts of barriers and discrimination someone may have faced yeah i i agree with that justin and it's interesting because um we have some upcoming podcasts that will be focusing on trauma-informed care um i feel like it's one of these things we cannot talk about enough right now 
Um, I remember when I graduated, you know, back in 2009, patient-centered care, you know, that word across Canada, it was just being printed in everything. And trauma-informed care is something I became aware of um, probably about seven or eight years ago, very intentionally and more connected to. But I do feel that that's the common thread in our profession with how we can really engage in addressing discrimination, just being aware of what's happening around us. I don't think trauma-informed care should only be something that those practicing in certain environments should be doing, like only in mental health or only in community settings. Um, every single person has experienced trauma on the planet to some degree in varying levels. And so it's, it is our responsibility to figure out how do we become informed um, and then how do we apply that? So how in the setting that we're in, what do we take and what can we use? But I, yeah, I do feel that that is the starting point, understanding the trauma you've been through personally, working through that, and then knowing how you can best help your clients. So it does bring me to my, to my last question for today, and that's really around this historical context of our profession. And I know around the table, we have a relatively uh, younger generation of o o OTs uh, talking today, but I'm wondering how either of you, if you wanna share um, anything that you might've read about or experienced th through working with clients, how our profession has maybe contributed to, or maybe it's, it's helped move away from this idea of discrimination, double, triple discrimination over time. And if that's a difficult question, maybe you can just comment on where you think we could be going as a profession. Yeah, it's certainly not an easy question to answer. And as a relatively uh, young or new therapist, like you said, Justine, uh, it's something that I'm still trying to learn about is where, where did our profession come from and what harms may have been done along the way that just because I did not do those directly does not mean that I don't carry that history with me. So when I show up at a client's door, there's a lot that follows me and, and is there with me. So when they see me right away, establishing that connection or that relationship or rapport isn't just me and that client. It's all the things that they may have interacted with in the past within the healthcare, the greater healthcare system. And I remember being an occupational therapy student and going to um, a rather rural community. And I had the honor of going to an Indigenous community and I was doing a home visit with my preceptor. And I remember I showed up in like a white dress shirt and we had our like our um, healthcare ID, whatever you want to call it, like our lanyard on with our picture and our name and our title and all of that. And before we got out of the car, I remember my preceptor asked me like, do you have other clothes that maybe like you could put on that are less formal and you just look like you've come from an institution where you're about to come in and like basically lay it down and how it's going to be essentially challenging professionalism and what it means to be a professional. And I remember that in that moment feeling like, okay, I perhaps could have done some harm there. What does it mean? Why does my appearance matter? It was a big moment of reflection and how something as simple as showing up at someone's house at a certain time wearing a certain thing could be potentially triggering for them um, based on a historical past. So since that placement, it's been something that I reflected on. And right now, not working clinically, I just do reading and things like that. I don't have any in-the-moment experience at this time. So, Justin, maybe you can um, add to what your experience has been. But, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to know other people's experience. So bringing forward that, again, that trauma-informed care, recognizing that everybody has their own past, 
interactions with healthcare, and they're not all going to have been positive. So I think as occupational therapists, we we can't get away from our history and the ways that it's implicated within the oppression of both the historical and ongoing oppression of people with disabilities, frankly, with with the eugenics movement and and the the ripple effects of that, which are ongoing. Some some academics call it newgenics. And we are also members of the health system as a whole. And the health system is a site of ongoing oppression for indigenous people, black people, persons of color, people of diverse gender identities. These are these are things that happen every day. These kinds of oppressive discriminatory experiences that are sometimes life and death. So if you encounter a client who has faced that kind of oppression and they're not all that happy to see you, there, there's a reason for that fact. And so what, what do we do about that? Well, I think it, it goes back to the trauma-informed approach that we can take as as therapists and and being those advocates from within the system as well to to make it better to change policies in you know in in small and in big ways like if you have if your site has an intake form and the intake form has very binary gender categories maybe you could advocate to to change that so that so that more diverse kinds of folks can feel seen and and represented by by your site. Thank you, Justin. And I just want to make sure that you had a chance to share on your last point. I think you you were kind of speaking it to, to it there with regards to what OTs could do when working with clients. Um, so acknowledging the assessment forms we're using and not, you know, being really explicit about uh, the interventions, where are they coming from? You know, what's the evidence base behind them? Uh, do, you know, it, it's interesting because I think for the longest time, gender explicitly was never really considered when looking at the um, demographics for research populations. And that's something that's being hugely challenged now, that that representation is made explicit. And I think that those are the, I see those, that as the day-to-day, -day. what OTs could be doing is really looking at where their knowledge is coming from and how their practice has been informed. Um, I just wanna make sure before we wrap up, because it's been such a great conversation, if, if either of you have any um, takeaway points for our listeners, that'd be great. And then I'll bring us home. I wanted to just touch on one more thing, which is that there, is within our profession representations of folks who who have faced who have faced that d double discrimination and sometimes in your day-to-day -day clinical work that might be something that you encounter yourself i can share that as a as a queer you know somewhat effeminate person working in wor working in different kinds of practice settings where where you're population could be the general public and 
the general public is full of lovely humans. It's, you know, Dolly Parton is in the general public, but but the general public also has has people who either intentionally or unintentionally hold oppressive views. And I've definitely faced homophobia to, to call a spade a spade. I've had clients call me homophobic slurs or or clearly uncomfortable with that aspect of me. And e even if I'm not um, being, I don't even know what I mean by this, but overtly gay, even, even if I'm not broadcasting my sexual orientation, it's is something that people perceive and that can lead to me facing facing discrimination or, or harmful views from my clients. And, and the other aspect of my identity is as an Indigenous person, but I'm a, a light-skinned Indigenous person, so I'm not perceived as Indigenous most of the time. And, and so sometimes a client or in my day to day life, but we're talking specifically about clinical practice. So sometimes I'll hear a very racist anti indigenous view from from a client and it's extremely uncomfortable. Like I'm, I'm there to help someone and yet they are oppressing me. And so what, what has been my strategy to deal with that kind of situation? It's kind of case by case. Uh, number one would be to do my own self care at the end of days like that, to debrief with colleagues, with friends, to go for a walk, to work with my therapist, talk, talk about this experience. And then a couple other strategies you can do are um, if you're if you're in a setting where this is an opportunity or, or possibility, maybe you could trade a client, you know, sh shift your caseload around. I've, as a male OT, sometimes I've taken on clients so that so that my female colleagues don't have to if the client has a history of violence against women. And if that that, but that's not always a possibility for you. So, so bringing in a colleague who can kind of be your backup and and witness what's going on. Um, can can be another strategy that that you implement. What are your thoughts, Holly? <laughs> I agree with everything you've just said, Justin. And there's a lot of overlap with parts of my own identity, parts of my own experiences. And I really like that you gave some practical strategies because whether it's queerness or um, racialization or other types of discrimination that OTs may be facing in their own work. Um, it's awkward. So for me, I'm, I present masculine of center and my voice sounds feminine, but I identify as non-binary. So when I would book my, um, some of my sessions with clients over the phone and they hadn't yet met me before when I was working in home and community care, I would show up at their door and I would knock. And this was during COVID. So I'd have a mask on and they would think that I was somebody else. They're like, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm Holly. We just booked our appointment. They're like, oh, and then they would just stare at me for couple minutes and like clearly they made some assumptions and then like my gender confused them and just this awkward 
yeah situation and then after I'd be like okay so like what does that mean about my identity I guess I look a certain way and so it's a lot to unpack in your own in your own mind and um I too am an indigenous person but I am I pass as white so people don't know I'm indigenous and same experience as you or similar I should say I hear things all the time that are inappropriate and inappropriate or oppressive and it's like you never know who's in the room. So again, at the end of the day, how am I going to unpack this? And um, for folks who experience it maybe more directly, I would think it's a lot for them to process too. So having those outlets is important. Um, and this is something that I could go on and on about, but I know that we're nearing the end. And um, just, I guess, to bring it back to what we talked about maybe in the middle of the podcast was knowing your own identity, knowing your own oppression, knowing your own privilege, and being grateful for what you have, but knowing that it's okay to also have times and days where like, it's really hard to be a human being in the world right now who is not straight, white, all of the privileged things intersecting. Um, and there's there's community out there for you. There's your people are out there. The more you can connect with them, the better if that's something that's available to you. Yeah, to your chosen family, they're, they're out there. Well said. Well said, Holly. I, I really want to thank Holly Reed and Justin Turner for being on our fourth episode focusing on double discrimination and bringing us on a journey through um, personal, professional and uh, experiences with clients and really our profession in occupational therapy. We, we asked ourselves, what is the role of the OT pre profession in addressing double discrimination and really talked about the importance of empathy through reflection being able to be change agents in our own environment as small as it might be on a day-to-day -day basis but thinking bigger when you can and being able to decrease barriers really through the building rapport process with clients and that really starts with addressing and acknowledging trauma from the very beginning so it has been a wonderful um, i've really enjoyed hosting this uh, i really look forward to future discussions on this topic for anyone listening today, please reach out to practice at caot.ca if you'd like to be on the podcast or suggest a topic. And we look forward to seeing you. In